Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, May 23rd, 2020. Right now, it is early Wednesday morning, and once again, I have Truth Vids here with me, and we are going to continue with our rebuttal to Charles Weissman's book, What About the Cain? I'm sorry, what about the seed line doctrine? Hello, Truth Fits. How are you this morning? Hey, Bill. Yeah, doing great. Um, yeah, so we're on to the blood of Abel. And accuses the Jews of being the descendants of Cain, that justice is still coming. Abel will one day have his vengeance. And, um, you know, if you, if you don't understand that, I always thought that Cain kind of got off lightly for killing his brother. But um, it's not been forgotten. And the fact that the Jews and all the other descendants of Cain have proven time and time again that they always commit the same crime and kill us whites, gradually exterminating us, it shows that they must be the descendants of Cain and that there must be some kind of genetic disorder that causes them to act this way, right, all throughout history. And Wiseman never explains that. He never explains it. His misreadings, and I'm going to talk about this in, in, once we get rolling, his misreadings of Scripture kind of excuse him from explaining it. And I mean, in John 8.44, Christ isn't calling um, his adversaries the descendant of the serpent. He's calling them the descendants of Cain. Cain was the first murderer. You can't go back to Genesis and find another murderer. And and some some um, conniving commentators try to say, oh, the serpent committed murder by seducing Eve. Well, no, he didn't. No, that's that that's a philosophical device that just tries to escape addressing the plain word of scripture. Here we shall um, once again continue. In the middle of chapter four, I think this is the third or fourth week on probably fifth week on chapter four, but that's fine. What we have to um, address every jot and tittle of Weissman's treachery. We're in the middle of chapter four, which is titled The Role of Cain. Our last presentation in the series brought us to the middle of page 35, and we have tarried quite a while addressing his arguments under the subtitle of your father, the devil. Doing this, so far we hope to have made it fully evident that Charles Weissman is guilty of three primary and crucial mistakes in his method of interpreting the scriptures. And the first is that he has consistently misread verses, and especially important verses, such as Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, where he didn't realize that the giants were already in the earth from of old, and John eight forty four, where he didn't realize that Christ was referring to Cain rather than the serpent or the devil, and Matthew chapter 12, 34, where he didn't realize Christ was talking about the parents of his adversaries as vipers. In each instance, he had failed to realize what the passage actually meant and based his arguments on his own poor or perhaps purposely 
wrong interpretations. Secondly, making those interpretations, he also twisted the meanings of the plain words of Scripture in the same manner as the Gnostics and Universalists, who have for ages insisted that Father does not mean a literal ancestor, or that children are not little literal offspring in Scripture. It's somehow like in in um in common coin Greek, a father's account, a father, a a a, a sperma, a child, or children are offspring, and and literal offspring. If the apostles were speaking everyday Greek, and Paul professed this, right? Paul had made it a point of saying that I would rather speak five words in a language that could be understood rather than a multitude of words in a tongue, in in some kind of um, cryptic language. It, it's the, he spoke plain Greek for plain people, and there's several ways to show that 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 was his intention in his epistles. He wasn't speaking in um, the terms, the philosophical terms of men. When we examined the passages of scripture, which Weissman himself had used as examples, we showed that the literal meanings of the words make perfect sense once they are understood in the actual historical context of scripture and in the context of the words of the prophets. Thirdly, Weissman himself has thus far refused to even consider the historical context of the New Testament, an understanding of which clearly refutes his own insistence made without any supporting evidence that all of the adversaries of Christ were Israelites. We have proven from the pages of Josephus, as well as from the epistles of Paul, and the words of Christ himself, that Weissman is wrong in making that insistence. Along the way, we have shown that Charles Weissman is guilty of many other lies and shortcomings, but these three, in my opinion, are the most important because making these mistakes, there is nothing else which is relevant to this dispute which he is going to properly understand. If all of the adversaries of Christ in the New Testament narratives are genetic Israelites, as Weissman insisted, then Paul is a liar. Christ himself is a liar. Flavius Josephus and Strabo of Cappadocia were liars, and many others as well. But we would prefer to believe that out of all these, while no man is perfect, only Charles Weissman is the liar, at least purposely. The New Testament alone proves Weissman to be a liar, but the historical background provided by Josephus, Strabo, and others proves that our interpretation of the plain and literal words of Christ and his apostles is true. If the words of Christ and his apostles are plainly and literally true, then there is no compulsion to contrive a metaphorical interpretation in order to force a conclusion which may be more palatable or acceptable 
to certain people or groups, partial Jews like Charles Weissman, if the plain interpretation consistently concurs with the words of both Christ and his apostles and the Old Testament prophets, and if the historical context corroborates the circumstances by which those words are interpreted, then we know that we stand in the truth and metaphorical interpretations which lead to some contrary conclusion must be rejected. Nevertheless, as we had said when we began our commentary on chapter 3 of Weissman's book, we will continue to discuss Weissman's arguments point by point, lest there be any room for those who uphold his lies to accuse us of not being able to answer any of his claims. So now we shall continue where we left off at the end of our last presentation in the series, and Weissman continues with his insistence that Christ merely used metaphors, where he addressed his adversaries in Matthew chapters 12 and 23, calling their ancestors vipers, you offspring of vipers, and not themselves, which proves that his words are literal and not metaphorical, that Christ considered his adversaries to be of the very seed of the serpent and not of Israel. As we have also elucidated, nowhere in scripture are the children of Israel ever called serpents or vipers. In spite of their multitudinous sins, they were always the children of God. I don't know if you have any comments before we start with Weissman himself. Yeah, just two things. Um, like, firstly, if Yahweh our God came down as a man and he can't even make his own people believe him, you know, a shepherd who can't even control his own sheep, then what kind of a God is that? That's just a complete failure of a God, right? I mean, if you watched a shepherd trying to manage sheep and he was, you know, just all over the place, you'd just laugh at him, wouldn't you? Well, right, absolutely. He never, um, he never pled with these Jews in his adversaries in order to convert them. He confronted them. He he, they wouldn't believe him even in spite of his many miracles. He, they didn't believe Moses. They didn't. They pretended to keep the law, but they really didn't keep the spirit of the law. And he told them time and again, he confronted them time and again, that they were basically just faking it, that they were just hypocrites who were faking it. He was, con he was confrontational with them. He wasn't pleading with them to repent. He told them they would die in their sins if they didn't believe him. That's not a personal appeal of repentance to each of them. It's a statement in fact that his sheep do hear his voice. So if they don't hear his voice, that means that they're not his sheep. The gospel was designed to divide the wheat from the tares, to distinguish the wheat from the tares. And all the words of the apostles support that position. 
But we look at it, we are so brainwashed into this concept of personal salvation. Christ is making a statement, in fact. If you don't believe me, it's because you're not my sheep. He told them that that was the reason why they did not believe him. They weren't his people in the first place. He was confronting them. He wasn't pleading with them to repent. He told them, you'll die in your sins. Yeah, exactly. And um, just, just one other quick thing, um, that you can't understand the Bible in a vacuum. If you don't understand like the context or what was going on at the time, you have to at least kind of have a basic understanding of who the races are, who the people are, what was kind of going on at the timeline. And Weissman takes that all away and just tries to explain it, you know, spiritually and with Gnostic beliefs. Well, well, absolutely. He, he you can't understand any, um, you can't really understand any ancient book without understanding or seeking to gain some understanding of the culture and um, political circumstances under which the book was written, you, you'll never properly understand it unless you understand something about how the culture functions, um, who the people are, who their neighbors are. It, it's, you need to know all that. And when you examine the history of first century BC, second century BC, Judea, then you understand the reasons for the divisions in the New Testament and, and the hatred of the rulers for Christ and for the concept of a Messiah, which was expressed right from the beginning, from, from when the Magi came to visit the Christ child, and he was already about a year or two old. He wasn't still a little baby. He, he It had been some time. And Herod went out and slew all the children from, I think, two years old and younger, hoping to slay the, the child that would be born the Messiah. And of course, he didn't because Joseph went down to Egypt. But that, that, that um, demonstration of enmity that these rulers had for the concept of a Messiah. Now, they were under um, Roman rule. If you look at them all, if you imagine them all to be Israelites, in the first chapter of Acts, the apostles asked Christ, at this time will you deliver the kingdom to Israel? That was the expectation that the people had, the true Israelites had. But the Edomites in control, because they weren't Israelites, the Edomites in control, they resisted that. They hated that thought. They should have been overjoyed that the Messiah was born. They should have been overjoyed that God, that Old Testament God fulfilled these promises that he had made in Isaiah and, and the other prophets, but they're cl clear, they're so clear in Isaiah, it, it's incredible, but also in Daniel and some of the other prophets. They should have been overjoyed. The Israelites were overjoyed, but the Herodians and, and the people in power hated the concept. 
They rejected the miracles they saw right in front of their own eyes, the healing of the blind and, and the lame. They rejected that and made excuses to reject it. Even though nobody, and, and it's spoken of, even though nobody had ever done those things, their own magicians couldn't do those things. Their own prayers, their own priests could never do those things. And they rejected it. So the, there must be a greater reason than simply disbelief. If you reject something that happens right before your eyes, that there must be a greater reason for that rejection than merely disbelief. There must be an underlying reason why you don't want to believe. And the fact that they are Edomites and opposed to God from the beginning. And, and that's, that explains it perfectly. And that's how the, the gospel explains it and, and the books and prophets explain it. So we can um, say this or, or try to explain this a million different ways forever. And there are going to be, just like then, so it is now, there are going to be people that can readily accept it and people that, like Charles Weissman, will find every reason possible and make up every lie possible to reject it because they have some personal underlying motive to reject it. Beginning with page 35, or, or commencing with page 35 of Weissman's book, he says, Christ used metaphors often. He spoke of bread which comes down from heaven, that if a man eats thereof shall live forever and not die, John chapter 6, verses 50 and 51. The words bread, life, and death are not meant physically or spiritually, but metaphorically. They stand for something else. Also, when Jesus spoke of the temple he would rebuild, he was using temple as a metaphor for himself. So, so here we see that Weissman didn't even um, believe in the promises of eternal life, which are very clear throughout the Old Testament scripture, as well as the new. He's trying to say that life and death are metaphors for something else. Every one of these metaphors and many others which refer to Christ or to the children of Israel make sense in a biblical context only because they correlate with things which are similar in the experience or history of the Old Testament Israelites or in types and prophecies of the Messiah, which had also fulfilled in one way or another the words of Yahweh, which are found in the books of the prophets. In, in other words, um, the manna in the desert that God fed the children of Israel with, that was bread from heaven. And that served as a type for the promised Messiah. So, in the books of the prophets, where the sheep are scattered and lost, the word of Yahweh, and we we cited this a week or two ago, the word of Yahweh said, I will feed my sheep. I will seek that which was lost. And that relates also to the bread from heaven that is represented by Christ. So the metaphor 
make sense when you correlate it to those things in the Old Testament. And that's why Christ describes himself as the bread which comes down from heaven, that if a man eats shall live forever and not die, if you keep the laws of God, if you keep his commandments, you will live forever and not die. You might die in this life, but you're going to have life. And, and that's the, um, the whole message of the scriptures ever since Adam had broken that first law to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he found death. So he was told, if the man reaches out his hand and grasps the tree of life, he will eat and live forever. So we have one constant thread through, from Genesis chapter 3 through the experience of the Old Testament Israelites and in the parables and words of Christ in the New Testament, where he spoke in reference to himself and his gospel, we have that one constant thread which connects all those things. So by the language that Christ used, as, um, as, as it's depicted in that Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6, we can identify what he's saying and what he's doing and what he means back through the Old Testament, through the words of the prophets, and through the experience of the Old Testament Israelites, and in the words which Yahweh spoke to Adam in Genesis. And we have a picture of the entire purpose of God in those words. So the metaphors he used were used for a specific reason to connect his purpose as being a fulfillment of those things which were spoken ever since Genesis. If those metaphors did not have their precursors in the Old Testament, then they would have been foreign to their listeners who knew their scriptures, and Christ the Messiah would not have been speaking in terms by which the people could have later identified him as their Messiah. The meaning is only made clear by the fact that they do represent or relate to important Old Testament concepts and expressions. Likewise, what Christ said concerning his adversaries also relates to metaphors describing certain entities or phenomena in the Old Testament, or they would not have made any sense to his listeners or within the context of biblical prophecy. The only obstacle to understanding that is that people like Charles Weissman refuse to believe that these words, such as serpent or offspring of vipers, generation of vipers, or children of the devil, represent tangible people and races in spite of the fact that they can also be traced through scripture and history and right into the very positions which they had occupied where Christ confronted them. If, 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 if the 
symbolism, the metaphors expressed by Christ of the bread of life can be connected through the words of the prophets, through the history of the Old Testament experience of the children of Israel and into the words of Genesis chapter 3, then so can the metaphors concerning his adversaries, or they're meaningless and he was just a vain babbler. But Christ was not a vain babbler. And um, also, you've mentioned it before, if uh, Christ accused them of being the descendants of Cain and responsible for Abel, then and they were not, then that would be slander, wouldn't it? It would be a false accusation, and Christ, Yahweh God, would be liable to the death penalty. Well, well right, absolutely. And, and that's something I didn't write into my notes um, when I prepared for this program. As we um, discuss his accusations, that particular accusation where Weissman brings it up a little later on the same page, right? But that's right. In the law, in the law, if you accuse somebody of a crime they did not commit, then you are liable to the punishments for that crime. And and that's a that that is a very important concept that discourages false witness. Today, in modern law, if I accuse you of um, something in front of a jury and a trial court that you didn't do and you were eventually exonerated and or found not guilty, right? And the prosecutor saw that I was purposely lying. He could charge me with perjury and I might get a prison sentence for that. But the penalty for perjury would be much lower, far less than the penalty for actually having committed a crime of murder. So if I falsely accuse you of a murder and I perjure myself, I might get a couple of years in, in prison for that, for trying to put you in the electric chair or in the gas chamber or in prison for the rest of your life. Under the Hebrew law, if I accuse you of murder and you were not guilty and I perjured myself, I'm going to be stoned. That's a big, that, that's, a, that's a really significant way to, to, to discourage false witness. I'm going to suffer the penalty that you would have suffered if you were found guilty. So I'm going to be stoned. For, for making that false accusation. So if Christ is accusing somebody of being responsible for the murder of Abel, who is not responsible for it, then he is guilty and liable to death because the penalty for murder is death. So we have to imagine when we read the New Testament scriptures, was... Um, Jesus just some clown on Facebook or in a forum running his mouth and making all sorts of accusation against people anonymously, and he's not really going to be responsible for his words. I mean, that's the way we see our conversations today, but throughout history, men were held accountable for their words. Even the scripture tells us that men will be judged for every idle word. Today, social media 
and and this internet and and the basic anonymity that is um, extant in in venues such as the Facebook or internet forums. Well, well, we might think we could get away with um, being assholes to one another and and making accusations against one another. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like that fifty years ago. If you if people said some of the things to me in public that they say to me on Facebook behind a computer 500 miles away, I'd whip their asses. I'd beat them in the street, or at least I'd try. 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, when you spoke in public, you were accountable for your words. And if you were making all kinds of... Um, false charges against people, you were going to be punished for that. And you would be punished severely. <laughs> you can't get away with that. So how do we interpret Christ? Was he just some daily stormer troll just running his mouth and, and trying to stir up shit? No, he wasn't. He was standing in front of the the um, rulers of, of the the local province, the local government, and, and he was making serious accusations. And according to the Hebrew law, he would suffer the punishments if those accusations were not true. We, um, we might get away with saying a lot of things on social media and abusing each other or disrespecting each other on social media, but we're going to answer that. We're going to answer to that or for that before our God. Ultimately, we're going to answer for everything we do. We're going to suffer the consequences of all of our sins one way or another, or we're going to repent. That's the only choice. And that means admitting that we were wrong and, and um, making a, a serious effort to apologize to our brethren and, and change our attitudes. Yeah, it was... Um different times back then you know what you said you have to be very careful you wouldn't just go up and call someone you know slander someone because you could seriously get in trouble back then but as now you know people they just shout and abuse each other all the time like little bitches all the time well well right absolutely and and it's it was a different world it was a different world 50 years ago it was a different world when, when i was a a child growing up before this, this, these internet forums and these social media pages, the world was very different. And, and there were no um, anti-bullying laws or anything like that. If you were a kid in school and rang your mouth, you could expect to get into a fist fight in the schoolyard after school. And if you got caught fighting in the schoolyard, they didn't lock you up and throw away the key. The teachers just broke the fight up and and made you shake hands and made everybody go home. And that was it. There were no repercussions like today. We live in such a um, feminized society that a child it is expelled from school and, and, and thrown in the brig for merely defending himself. It, it's incredible today. It, it's ridiculous that the society we live in has created um, two or three generations of, of women 
out of men or, or what should be men. Because many of these young men are, are just women. They're feminized. It's crazy. They even act like women. Continuing with Weissman on, on that same page, Bible interpretation is not so simplistic as taking things to be either literal, literal or spiritual. Words may be spoken figuratively, symbolically, allegorically, poetically, typically or anti-typically. They may be used as a euphemism, idiom, slang, or sarcasm. To understand scripture interpretation is everything. By proper interpretation, no one in the Bible was literally called a serpent or the seed of the serpent or a child of Satan. And, and here Weissman is once again onto something, and then he ignores it or mentions and fails to address it, as he has many times in the past, where he mentions the antitypical interpretation of terms. While the word has other meanings in a secular sense, in New Testament interpretation and antitype, according to dictionary.com, is something that is foreshadowed by a type or symbol as a New Testament event prefigured in the Old Testament. But once again, Weissman also fails to recognize what I can only call the historic method of interpretation. That to understand words in the scriptures, we must understand the historic context in which they were spoken in order to understand what is said. So where Christ had called his adversaries serpents, children of the devil, offspring of vipers. The antitype is the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was not a literal serpent. The serpent was a person described as a serpent. And Weissman himself basically admitted that back at the beginning of his book, where he said that the serpent was re in rebellion from God and had its own order in the world, which was opposed to the order of God. So Weissman admitted this, but he refuses to accept it, even though he admitted it. He made that admission. I think it was back in chapter two or three. We discussed it maybe 10 or 12 weeks ago, but he made that admission through the historic interpretation of the context in which the terms were used, in which those terms were used. Our position is proven because it can be established through scripture and history that his adversaries, the adversaries of Christ, were indeed connected genetically to that same serpent of Genesis chapter 3. The children of Canaan and Esau actually did intermarry with the Kenites, the Rephaim, and other related groups. And it is some of their descendants 
who stood to oppose Christ in Judea in the time of his ministry. They weren't children of a spiritual Satan. They were children of an early entity that had rebelled against and was opposed to God. So they were children of Satan. And this is all the um, enmity between thy seed and the seed of the serpent. Absolutely. You know, offspring of vipers, it should ring a bell straight away, and you'd think, oh, right, that must be the Genesis 3.15. Weissman treats that as if Christ is just calling them names, and it doesn't really mean anything. But Christ, by using those terms, isn't calling them names. He's calling their parents vipers. What did, they, what did their parents do? If Christ called your parents vipers, where is the related charge to establish the accusation as truth? Because if you're making an accusation, then you're liable for your words. So you have to back it up with a charge, with substance, which the charge also requires that you in turn have two or three witnesses to establish it. Where is it? I'll tell you what the witnesses are. The witnesses are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Moses, and Genesis chapter 3. They are the witnesses. Another type for this situation, aside from those we have already mentioned, such as Malachi chapters 1 and 2 and Ezekiel chapter 35, is found in Zechariah chapter 3. And this rebuilding, this description of the rebuilding of the temple, the second temple, which is in the time of Zerubbabel, beginning with about 520 BC, and that's when Zechariah is writing, this is a type for Christ. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. That name, Joshua, is the same exact form as the, the Greek name for Jesus, which we transliterate as Yahshua. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebukes thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem rebukes thee. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? So we see this, this psalm, the opposition which Joshua the high priest had in the days of Zerubbabel to building the temple of God was expressed in the language that foreshadowed the opposition which Christ would have building the true temple of God which is the regathered body of the children of Israel, as he was um, made manifest on earth in order to reconcile them. Weissman, continuing with Weissman, Christ's use of metaphors and the wrong interpretation applied to them by the scribes Pharisees and religious leaders was a part of the reason for their bringing about his death and crucifixion. Those who blindly apply a strict literal interpretation to the Bible 
in all instances, are following the same error of the Jews and Pharisees. As if we, um, as if we believe that these were really literal snakes, that their parents were literal snakes. <laughs> Nobody believes that. The scribes and Pharisees certainly didn't believe that. Here Weissman attributes the crucifixion to the mere misunderstanding of the Jews and Pharisees. But that is not how Christ had attributed it. Christ knew that they would kill him. He said it many times. He planned it that way from the foundation of the world. And he knew that they would do it because they were not his sheep in the first place. So we read in John chapter 10, once again, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. They didn't even believe that, right? When they saw it and, and heard valid reports of it, it was all right in front of their faces. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So he told them once again, but you believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. There Christ clearly told his adversaries that they did not understand him because they were not his people in the first place. And he also said that his people would understand that, understand him. And ultimately, they did. And this is an aspect of first century history, which the Jews have always sought to obscure. And that's the number of Christians in Judea in the first century. They loved to portray Christianity as a small sect of upstarts that was more successful when they brought their religion to the so-called Gentiles. But that is not true. It is not true. They, they, um, they downplay the effect that Christianity had on first century and, and later Judea. As we read in Acts chapter 2, of an event which occurred at the first Christian Pentecost, only seven weeks after the crucifixion. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day they were added unto them, meaning unto the apostles and disciples of Christ, about 3,000 souls. Then later in Acts chapter 4, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. Then, over 25 years later, in Acts chapter 21, and the book of Acts covers a period of almost 30 years, or right around 30 years, in Acts chapter 21, where we see a division between the teachings of James and Paul, and the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought 
among the Gentiles or among the nations by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews or Judeans there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law, and they are informed of thee, that thou teachest that all the Jews or Judeans, which are among the Gentiles or nations, to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. And of course, I'm sorry, of course, Paul had taught a departure, not from the, the commandments of the law, but only from the, the rituals and all of the um, outer appearance of being Judeans, because the Israelites of Judea in Christ were actually being reconciled themselves to the Israelites of the ancient dispersions and captivities, which was the great bulk of the descendants of the children of Israel, who had already become those many nations. They were the 12 tribes scattered abroad that Paul was bringing the gospel to, as he professes in Acts chapter 26. So, they're to all be made one in Christ, and, and there was no more reason for the Israelites of Judea to keep those Old Testament commandments that made them dress a certain way and act a certain way and um, do all these rituals. They, they, were, they were pointless. They were pointless in Christianity. Christ is, as Paul also explained, Christ is the last ritual the last Passover. So even 25 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, which is way, where we are at in Acts chapter, chapters 20 and 21, 25 years after the crucifixion, there were tens of thousands of Christians in Jerusalem alone, and many more thousands or tens of thousands in the surrounding regions. But as we can tell from the writings of Justin Martyr and the doctrines which are ascribed to the later Ebionite Christians of Judea, they were Judaized Christians. James had accepted the same heresies for which Paul had criticized Peter as he had recorded in, Act, in Galatians chapter 2. Nevertheless, James was able to remain the leader of the Christians in Jerusalem until he was killed by the Edomite Sadducees in 62 AD. So the words of Christ are true, that his sheep heard his voice, but his adversaries were never meant to understand him because, as he said, they were not his sheep, and that is why they killed him. The Gospel of John makes that clear in many other ways besides the discourse of Christ recorded in John chapters 8 and 10. Therefore, Weissman, contriving a reason for the disbelief of the adversaries of Christ other than the reason that Christ himself had given, once again invents a lie. He invented a lie because he made up a reason for their denial of Christ, when 
it's contrary to the reason that Christ himself has given. And he's invented lies all throughout this book. So, Bill, do you think um, this is probably when the Jews started to realize that they couldn't stop Christianity? So instead, tried a different tactic and started to infiltrate it, perhaps at this time? Well, well, right. We could see in Acts chapter 15 that the, um, the Pharisees, certain Pharisees who had, had um, I guess, professed Christianity, were teaching that even the, the um, converts from the nations should be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And the decision of the apostles was um, correct in regard to them. And the apostles decided that the people who were being converted to Christ from among the nations did not have to be circumcised and did not have to keep all of the ritual laws found in the books of Moses. They only had to keep the commandments and do a couple of other things, like not eat things which were strangled or, or not be circumcised. So the apostles themselves made that, made that decision in relation to the Christians of the nations. But Peter and James continued to uphold the notion that people, new people, new babies being born into Judaism should be bound to do those rituals and keep those things which Moses had prescribed. And Paul was preaching against that. It, it, people were, um, people in the ancient world really did believe they were bound to their oaths and took them seriously. And when you were born a Judean, you were circumcised. And once you were circumcised, they saw that as a commitment to keep all the other rituals and, and the cleansings and, and all of the things that were regimented for the children of Israel to do in the Old Testament. So Paul rejected that. He taught that after Christ, the children born to Judeans should not be raised like that. They should be raised just like the Christians of the nations would be raised, that they were all one in Christ. And as far as I'm concerned, scripturally, Paul's position is the correct one. But the apostles, James and Peter, Peter was hypocritical about it. He was sitting on the fence, and Paul showed that in Galatians chapter 2, that Peter was sitting on the fence, he was wavering back and forth, he was going to the Judean side, and when he was with the, the um, converted Christians from among the nations, he was um, siding with them, and, and Paul accused him of hypocrisy for that, so... James, he stayed on that side where of, of um, Judaizing, but only regarding the Christians of Judea. And history and the ultimate fulfillment and development of Christianity proves that Paul was right and that James was wrong. But they were only men. They weren't perfect. 
even though they were apostles of Christ, even though they um, brought to us and perpetuated his gospel, and even though we have Christianity on account of them, they were still men. They weren't perfect. They made mistakes. Paul made a mistake when he had Timothy circumcised for fear of the Jews, on account of the Jews. And if we understand um, the position of James and the Christians in Jerusalem, which Paul did respect his elders, then we can see why he had Timothy circumcised. Because Timothy's mother was a Judean. They felt that Timothy, even though his father was a Greek, they still felt that Timothy should submit to the laws of Moses and and keep those rituals. So Paul just, I guess he conceded to them. But he, he taught that it was wrong. So he was under a constraint because Paul saw Peter and James as his elders. And he respected them, even if he thought they were wrong. And his epistles clearly, and, and that's confusing to a lot of people. But men were honorable in those days. And they did things like that because of their, on account of the honor that they had for one another and for their elders. They did things like that. So the words of Christ are true that the sheep heard his voice. There were tens of thousands of Christians in Judea. But it was persecuted out of existence. The Ebionites, they didn't, they didn't persist in history, and, and by the time of the Muslim period, and that also was a device of the Jews, they were gone. Continuing with Weissman on page 36 of his book, immediately after Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees serpents and vipers, now, right there, he's wrong. Christ called them serpents, but he called their parents vipers, right? He brings a charge and judgment against them involving the shedding of innocent blood. We must interject before Weissman's next example. And this is where your comments earlier this evening come into play. Even Weissman says he brings a charge and judgment against them. So if he's charging the wrong party, then he himself is liable of the penalty. And, and Weissman, that's the law. That's the law in, in, in um, Le Leviticus and, and in Deuteronomy. That is the law, the law of, that, of, of the false witness. So we must interject briefly before Weissman's next example to remind ourselves that Christ did not call the scribes and Pharisees serpents and vipers. In any example Weissman has so far provided, and in fact, it's not in there, so he couldn't. Rather, Christ called them serpents in Matthew chapter 23, verse 33. But he called their parents vipers, where he told his adversaries that they were the offspring of vipers. That fact alone proves that he was speaking of their race, of their origin, and not merely their belief as Weissman so wrongly insists. So now, speaking of Christ, he continues, and he says, in Matthew 23, he states, you serpents, you generation, that's that word genema, right, for offspring, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you 
prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. And that word is genea. It really means race. It's not the same word as generation where Christ said generation of vipers. That word is genema. Genea is the race. Genema is what is produced. It's the offspring of a race. And, and it's, it's, it's a related and extremely similar word, but it's used in a different context. Genema refers to offspring. So when you call somebody the offspring of vipers, you're calling their ancestors vipers. Now, Christ said, upon you. But Weissman is going to kind of transfer that to the entire Adamic race, and there's a lot of fault in that. But before we proceed with Weissman, we shall note several things about, before we proceed with addressing Weissman, that we shall note several things about these three verses. First, the words, son of Barachias are a later interpolation, apparently. And if the apocryphal literature is correct, the verse is actually identifying this Zacharias as the father of John the Baptist. The words son of Barachias do not appear in the Codex Sinaiticus here or in any manuscript where Luke records the same words of Christ in an account of a separate in incident in chapter 11 of his gospel. Luke, Luke, Christ had said these things here in Jerusalem, but in Luke chapter 11, Christ had also said these things to others of his adversaries in Galilee. If they do refer to the father of John the Baptist, then where Christ said, whom you slew, he is speaking a literal truth. And, and that certainly, so, so that certainly seems to be the case. Where Christ called his adversaries serpents, he was speaking of them directly. But once again, where he called them a generation of vipers, the Greek word genema means offspring, and he is speaking in reference to their parents, calling their parents vipers. Finally, in the last clause here, where he says, all these things shall come upon this generation, the word is genea, which means race. Weissman now attempts to explain our position, and he says, those who adhere those who adhere to the satanic seed line concept, quote verse 35 and say, this proves that these people Jesus spoke to were Cainites, descendants of Cain. 
They claim that here, Jesus traces his enemies, the children of the serpent, the serpent race, down through the centuries to those who murdered the prophets, the righteous, back down the line to Cain, who killed Abel. Weissman denies this, but it is absolutely true. By speaking of crimes, both near and remote, by referring to the parents of these men as vipers, the word genea meaning offspring, then the word, then using the word genea, which must be translated as race, that is certainly the context of the statements which precede. That, that is certainly the context of the statements to which those words refer. It's, we're speaking of crimes of the past and crimes of the more recent past, crimes of the ancient past and crimes of the more recent past in relation to these terms offspring and race. That's the context that a particular race was going to be found guilty of all these crimes. Now, continuing with Weissman, the problem with this, Weissman says, is that Jesus never said that these people or their ancestors killed Abel. That's a false accusation under the law if you're going to say that you're going to suffer the punishment for a crime that you did not commit. That's a false accusation. But Christ is telling this race, these offspring of this race, that they are going to suffer the punishment for this crime. Then they must be guilty of it in some way. Weissman says, he said that the blood of Abel and others was going to come upon them. This is one of several instances where Jesus foretold of a coming judgment upon the Israel nation. In fact, it was a judgment upon Adamic man, of which Israel was the recognized heir and responsible party. Wow, that is a, a really convoluted view. Saying that the blood of Abel is upon them, Christ does indeed indicate that it was their ancestor who killed Abel, or they could not be held liable for his death. It's the same concept as the Jews saying when they demanded that Christ be executed, that his blood be on us and our children. The blood of Abel was on Cain and his children. Wow. It's the same exact concept. But the Adamic race was ultimately descended from Seth. And Seth was not even yet born when Abel was killed. So the descendants of Seth cannot be justly liable, held liable for the death of Abel by any means. The descendants of Seth do not suffer on account of the sins of their father. I'm sorry. The descendants of Seth do suffer on account of the sins of their father, Adam. But neither can Adam nor Seth be held liable 
for the blood of Abel. How can you hold Seth liable for the blood of Abel when Seth was not even killed? Seth was not even born when Abel was killed. How can you do that? Where is the um, license for that in the law? Weissman is an self-professed expert in the law. He wrote a book on the law. I'd like to read that book and take it apart. Weissman can't possibly know the law. <laughs> How could he know the law? He's a professed expert on the law. Only Cain, and according to the Old Testament custom, the descendants of Cain can justly be held liable for the death of Abel. You know, Paul explains, in, and we're going to get into Romans chapter 5 here, but Paul explains in Romans chapter 5 that because Adam sinned, then all the descendants of Adam had, had suffered the consequences of that sin. And that sin was to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that caused Adam to die, and subsequently all of his descendants faced death because of Adam's sin. And Paul says, even those who had not sinned in the manner of the transgression of Adam. So all Adamic people have to um, bear that penalty for Adam's sin. Well, here, Christ is basically saying that the race of vipers and serpents has to bear the penalty for the sins of their first father, Cain. And John 8, 44, he's saying that Cain is their father, that Cain was a murderer from the beginning. Wow. And Weissman is twisting and twisting and twisting in order to refute that plain truth that can't be refuted because Seth can't be blamed for the blood of Abel. Seth's father did not kill Abel. Only Cain can be justly, and his descendants can be justly held liable for the death of Abel. And Yahweh held Cain alone responsible for that death, as we read in Genesis chapter 4, where it first refers to Yahweh God in verse 10. And he said, God, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be the earth, just as the apostles talked about vagabond Jews in the book of Acts. And Cain said unto the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. How does this transfer to Seth, who wasn't born for some years after this? How does that work? Of course, it doesn't work. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you should be looking for a merchant, right, a merchant race to find out who the descendants of Cain are. Yeah, right. You just said it. Because that merchant race, that race of international bankers, are fugitives and vagabonds in the earth. They got thrown out of every country. They've looted and pillaged every country with their merchandising and their profiteering and their usury. 
And they've been vagabonds ever since. They're still vagabonds, even though today they're firmly entrenched and there are other things and other prophecies being fulfilled. They're still vagabonds that belong to no nation except the artificial nation that they created in, in 1947, which isn't even a nation. That's why Yahweh really told the children of Israel that I will bring you to jealousy by a nation that is not a nation. <laughs> and now we have all these Zionist Judeo-Christians wishing that they were Jews, being envious <laughs> of the damn Jews. Thanks to people like Weissman. So Weissman says, however, most Israelites were now divorced from God and no longer under the old covenant and thus could not be judged as a responsible heir. And here, Weissman is turning the scriptures upside down. He really is. This is not true. Until Christ was slain on the cross, all of the Israelites of the captivities remained bound by the law, as Paul had explained in Romans chapter 7, that the wife married to a husband, Israel being seen as the wife, the bride of Yahweh in the books of the prophets in the Old Testament, that the wife was bound by the law until the husband died. And Christ, being God incarnate, came to die so that they would be released from the judgments of the law. And in Galatians chapter 4, Paul said that Christ came, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. They were in captivity, but they were still bound by the law. They were still under the judgment, under the judgments which they were liable for death if Christ hadn't redeemed them from death. They were liable to death under the judgments of the law. So Weissman is just plainly lying. Therefore, because they were still under the judgments of the law, when Christ spoke these words, he was not yet crucified. So they were still under the judgments of the law. So once again, Weissman lies, and now he continues to lie. He says, but the Israelites in Judea were still under the old order. They were the last Israelites still answerable under the terms of the old covenant. They weren't answerable under the terms of the old covenant. They were all liable to death for their sin. They were answerable under the judgments of the old covenant, but they could no longer make atonement. And I'll explain why. These Israelites of Judea were also under the judgments of the law, but they were not keeping the old covenant, whereby they could make atonement. Yahweh himself had announced that the old covenant was broken in Zechariah chapter 11. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant, which I had made with all the people. And it was broken in that day. So, and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Furthermore, propitiation for sin required a sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat 
according to the law in Leviticus chapter 16. And as Paul had also explained throughout Hebrews chapters 9, 10, and 11. The mercy seat was affixed to the top of the Ark of the Covenant. But none of this existed, at least in Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat did not exist. After the Babylonians, and especially the Edomites, had looted and burned the temple in 585 or 586 B.C., so during the entire Second Temple period, because there was no Ark of the Covenant, because there was no mercy seat, there was no remission for sin, and the Judeans were not answering to God according to the Old Covenant, as it had already been broken. Next, Weissman lies a third time. With the end of the Old Order and Covenant, and the establishment of the new covenant, judgment needed to be rendered upon the Adamic race for that which it had done under the old order. And that is a blatant lie. Polytarsus in Romans chapter 5 had explained, and I'll read from verse 12, that for this reason, just as by one man, referring to Adam, Sin had entered into the society, the world, which God created when he established Adam and Eve and their race and gave them their instructions and that one law not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by that sin, death, because they did touch the tree. And in that manner, death has passed to all men, to all the descendants of Adam, on account that all have done wrong. For until the law, sin was in a society, but sin was not accounted, there not being law. But death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned resembling the transgression of Adam, who is an image of the future, but should not, as was the transgression, in that manner also be the favor. If indeed, in the transgression of one, meaning the transgression of Adam, many die, much greater is the favor of Yahweh and the gift in favor, which is of the one man, Yahshua Christ, in which many have great advantage. And not then by one having sinned, meaning Adam, is the gift. Indeed, the fact is that judgment of a single one, meaning Christ, is for condemnation. That's how he bore our sins. But the favor is from many transgressions, all the transgressions of the race of Adam, into a judgment of acquittal. Christ didn't die so that we would have to face judgment for the murder of Abel <laughs> that we're not responsible for. Christ died to redeem us from sin, to save us from sin and death. God himself coming and dying in the flesh to pay the penalty for the entire Adamic race. So then, as of that one transgression of Adam is for all men for a sentence of condemnation, 
In this manner, then, through one decision of judgment, Christ deciding to die for his people to release them from the judgment of the law, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, for all men is for a judgment of life. So we see here, as well as in Romans chapter 7 and in Galatians chapter 4, that Christ died to free the children of Israel and by extension the entire race of Adam from judgment for the sins committed in the age of the Old Testament and the new as the promise of mercy continues. Essentially, Weissman is lying once again by telling us that Christ died so that we could all be held accountable for what our fathers did in the Old Testament period. And that's exactly what he said here. That son of a bitchin' Jew, that's exactly what he said. He's turned the Old Testament on his head, on its head, to try to disprove two seed lines. He stepped way over the line here. He should be wearing a freaking rabbi hat and a long black coat. Wow. This is so incredibly blatantly anti-Christian. It is precisely the opposite of the promise of salvation and mercy which are in Christ. Weissman's lie betrays his own mind that he thought just like a Jew. He's a damn Jew. I have no doubt now after this, that this um, pretzel twisting of the entire purpose of God that he's pulled off here. I don't believe that Christians read this crap and believed it. I don't believe that men like Mark Downey even Pete Peters, Ted Wyland, and, and Stephen Jones, and James Brueggemann, everybody that followed Weissman, um, that, that other turkey up, up in Sheldon Emery's son-in-law, I can't even, Dave Barley, they believed this. They all read this crap and believed it. So Christ died so that we could all pay the punishment for the death of Abel, that we're all going to face that judgment. He said we're going to face that judgment. The entire Adamic race is going to face that judgment. Wow. Christ is telling the children of Cain that they're going to face that judgment. That's what he's really saying. That this is incredible. I don't know how you feel about this, but this just obviously from my reaction has pissed me off that people accept this. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the mentality that um, we all need to bail the banks out because because they failed. What's that got to do with us? The entire country needs to go in debt for them. Yeah, right. For the sins of the bankers, for, for their... Um crooked ways and and wow yeah right well that that's sort of like saying the same thing right some kike killed abel oh um cain killed abel and we all have to pay the punishment for that and christ died to make sure that we all have to face judgment for that no christ died to atone for to make a propitiation for the sins of the Adamic race, to relieve us of judgment for those sins, not to make sure that we face it. Yeah, and I was, I was also wondering how Weissman would tie in 
um, you know, the Israelites with the whole Adamic race, how we would do that transfer that somehow Christ is for the whole Adamic race and that now there's no longer, you know, that Christianity is suddenly for everybody. He had to do it somehow, and this is the way he did it. Well, well right, and, and it's wrong. It's wrong. It, it's basically an oversimplification of Scripture. It's wrong. The truth is what Paul just said here, that to the other um, members of the Adamic race, because they weren't given the law, that sin was not imputed to them. And there's a promise of redemption for them, but it's not in the relationship between God and Israel, which is entirely on different terms, that the children of Israel were to inherit the earth based on the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's because the entire Adamic race had been corrupted, and they were corrupted at the hands of the descendants of Cain. And, and their own literature proves that. The Epic of Gilgamesh and, and all of their, um, and, and we've tied these together. I've tied these all together in the Bible Basics series with Sven Longshanks. I can't possibly do it here. But the truth in the scripture is the antithesis to all of the pagan literature of the ancient world. And, and that's why there are so many similarities in it. The fallen angels had corrupted all of those other nations. And their own literature admits that. Their own pagan literature makes that admission. They, these um, hybrid fallen angels were, were their rulers. <coughs> and the scripture tells us. So the Bill, was the, um, were ruling over the, the, the sins of the other Adamic races? Oh, sorry. Well, well, I mean, Paul explains it. You know, when Paul speaks to the Athenians, who were Ionian Greeks, who were not Israelites, in Acts chapter 17, if you really read his words there, he's not speaking about Jesus, sin, redemption, covenants. He's speaking to them on the terms of Genesis chapter 3. He's speaking to them on the terms of the relationship with the other races in Genesis chapter 10 and Deuteronomy chapter 32, when God separated the sons of Adam and divided them among the nations. He left the bounds of the nations um, according to the number of the children of Israel. And Paul is actually citing that scripture in Acts chapter 17 where he's talking about God making of one all the nations that were on the face of the earth. That's the scripture he's referring to, and, and the events in Genesis chapter 11. So he's speaking to them on those terms, and not on the terms of an older new covenant, because he can't, because they weren't Israelites. And it's the same thing when he addressed the Lycaonians in Acts chapter 14. And the Lycaonians were evidently descended from the ancient Lydians or, or perhaps from the ancient Ionians. The history is um, obscure, but they weren't Israelites. They weren't descendants of the Israelites. So Paul spoke to them on terms of, of God 
which come from earlier in Genesis, but which don't come from the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because the Lycaonians don't have anything to do with the covenants with Israel. So the, the truth of that interpretation of the scripture certainly does come out in Paul's words in the book of Acts. The Adamic race has so that a primary... promise of redemption. That promise of redemption is in the promise of redemption to Adam, unless the man reach out and grasp the tree of life and live forever in Genesis chapter 3. And it's evident in other places, such as the wisdom of Solomon and some of the words of the prophets. I'm sorry. So, so their primary sin, sorry, was race mixing and adultery, right? Uh, nothing else could really be held accountable to them. Well, well, right. I mean, the the, the it, it's very clear in history that the the word Arab had. If if you look at the um, accounts in scripture of who had occupied the lands in what we know as Arabia, which were very much more fertile at one time, we can see tribes that were descended from Joktan and other tribes descended from Shem or Ham. They were all white tribes and tribes descended from um, Abraham through his sons with his wife Keturah. And they were all white. They were all just as white as the Israelites were. And they had all settled what we now know as Arabia. But it became known as Arabia in early times because all those tribes had mixed together. None of them had the law. They had all mixed together. And they mixed together with the Rephaim and the Canaanites that inhabited, and the Kenites that inhabited areas in that same place or in those same places. So they all became, over a period of a thousand years, they all became mixed. And at some point, by the time of um, the later prophets of the scripture, they are no longer identified individually. They're just called, the whole place is just called Arabia. And that comes from that Hebrew word, Areb, which means mixed. That's an aspect of history that you're not taught in school, but it's absolutely true. And, and eventually, it, and, and the, as a verb, Areb also means to grow dark. And they were trading in African slaves before 1000 BC. And there's evidence of that. They were bringing African slaves to Malaysia and, and Southeast Asia, 750 BC. And there's anthropological evidence of that from the 19th century, which has now been swept under the rug of political correctness. So that's one evidence that many of the um, Genesis 10 nations had mingled themselves with the other races. But the Assyrian Empire had, had folded in the Mitannian Empire, which had been had contained a great number of Hurrians, and then the Hittite Empire, and the Hittites were Canaanites, and eventually they all amalgamated, and, and then you had the, um, the process continue under the Babylonian and Persian empires, and then in the, in the Greek, in the Hellenistic period, 
which followed the Persian Empire, Alexander the Great and his successors really sought to homogenize all of the lands they conquered so that everybody would be the same and worship the same gods and be the same um, muddy race that they didn't, that they thought of on, on terms of creating world peace by homogenizing the nations, even back then. Even in 3000 BC, this idea of globalism is not new. This idea of unity by race mixing goes way back into the beginning of the Old Testament. When the Canaanites came to Isaac and said, let our daughters take your sons and your daughters take our, our, our sons and will have peace and prosperity, that this is a very old concept, and it's a satanic concept. It's without doubt a satanic concept. This mixing of the races and nations in the name of peace. But all those ancient empires practiced it, every one of them. The Romans, to an extent, And had you'd something. expect a mongrel, a, a mongrel to want to uh, do that to a pure breed, right? To just, right. oh, let's all just be the same, you know, right. looking up uh, a pure breed. The Romans had laws which governed which nations were allowed to intermarry with, each, with one another. They actually had laws which governed that. But by the third century AD, they had started taking their slaves and making them citizens. And it was a total breakdown of that structure. And that that led right to the fall of Rome. That that's when the when when it really started its its decline. And that's what da Daniel says was going to lead to the fall of Rome. That's exactly what the prophet Daniel said, Daniel chapter two. So that that's that, that's all a digression, but it all sort of fits in with 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 this entire um, theme or thread of two seed lines through the scriptures, without a doubt. All those ancient empires had, had race mixed in order to create their own utopias and, and as a, an attempt to homogenize their peoples and, and their religions and their religious beliefs. Even the Romans in the first century had begun to, to import a lot of the religious beliefs of the nations that they conquered into Rome. They brought back temples and um, statues of Isis from Egypt and started to worship Isis and, and Mithraism, which, which had come from Parthia. And, and you had Romans, which were, uh, which were the sun worshipers of Mithra. Right? I, I mean, it, it's no different than the, than the course of Britain and the United States in modern times, where at some point... Um, in, in the 20th century, they started to import all, all of these strange beliefs, Harry Krishnas and Hindus, and we have um, Anglo-Saxon Americans that profess to be Buddhists. <laughs> it's the same thing all over again. Every religion is good, and they're all the same because they all worship the same God, and God loves everybody. It's the same concept. It's expressed in slightly different terms, slightly more modern terms. It's all the same evil bullshit. It's been going on for 
thousands and thousands of years, probably since the, the, the event of described in Revelation chapter 12, where Satan and his angels rebelled against, against God. Oh, oh, but Weissman denies that. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's so clear in the ancient inscriptions, once you have the correct perspective and go back and read them again, it's, it's perfectly clear. Oh, well. By Weissman's logic, and, and first let me make one more comment from Weissman before I continue. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm losing my place again. These Judeans, these Judean Israelites, he says, were to bear the judgment for all the unlawful acts of murder committed, whether or not their direct ancestors had done them. This includes the murder of Abel by Cain, because Cain was an Adamite. Now, now wow, you cannot get more unchristian than that. That is so far outside of the purpose of Christ and the law of God that Weissman had to get that from the Talmud or something. Where did he get that from? Notice he makes these statements. He doesn't cite any scriptures supporting them. Not one. So by Weissman's logic, our entire race is wholly responsible for the crimes committed by every other member of a race, even if your ancestors didn't do it. At the least, that attitude seeks to portray Yahweh God as a Marxist. That's what Weissman's doing. We're all equally guilty. We all get equally rewarded. We all get equally punished for everybody's sin or for everybody's work. It's Marxism. It's theological Marxism. Saying it, Weissman surely does sound like a Jew. How were Adam or Seth responsible for the killing of Abel by Cain? Theological Marxism. I'll have to remember that one. The truth is that the language of Christ here in Matthew 23, once again, proves that these men were descendants of Cain, just like his words in John 8.44 identifies them as descendants of Cain, but Weissman purposely misread that passage so that he could obscure the truth. Yahweh God promised to cleanse all the sins of the children of Israel, of all Israel, regardless of what they had done. For example, we read in a messianic prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 33, in verse 7, and I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first, and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. And again, in another messianic prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, I, even I, am he that blots out thy transgressions from my own, for my own sake, and will not remember thy sins. All of the apostles of Christ taught the forgiveness of the sins of the children of Israel in him. Once again, as Paul 
had explained at length in Romans chapters 5, 6, and 7. So Christ told his apostles that he had cleansed their sins. Where we read of his having ceremonially washed their feet at the so-called Last Supper, responding to Peter in John chapter 13, Jesus said to him, He that is washed need not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. Now, the custom in ancient times, because the climate was dusty, the roads were dusty, at least often, and, and or they were muddy if they weren't dusty, and they wore sandals. The custom was to wash your feet before you ate dinner, often, if you could, even before you entered a house, so that they would be clean when they reclined on these couches to eat because they ate on couches, not sitting up at a table. So that's why Christ washed their feet. It was, it, it was a necessary custom, but he did it in a ceremonial manner. Ye are clean, but not all, for he knew who should betray him. And therefore he said, ye are not all clean. Now, what sin did Judas commit up to this period? None. There's no sin that Judas could righteously be accused of at this point. We have no evidence. So, Yahweh God had promised to clean the sin, to cleanse the sins of the children of Israel. And for the rest of the Adamic race, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 5, sin would not be imputed since they were never given the law. As it says, going back to your original question, Truthvids, as it says in, um, I believe it's Acts chapter 14, but it's where Christ had, no, it's in Acts chapter 17, where Christ addressed the Athenians. I think it's in verse 27. God in times past let every nation go its own way to see if perhaps they would seek him. And they didn't. They all went off into paganism, and as a result of their paganism, they, they all ultimately destroyed themselves. So, for the rest of the Adamic race, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 5, sin would not be imputed since they were never given the law. But Judas was called a devil by Christ. And in John chapter 13, Christ was speaking of Judas once again, where he said, ye are not all clean. In John chapter 15, we learn the truth of what he told Peter in John chapter 13, as he said, now you are clean, not because he washed their feet, as he explained in John 13. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. In John chapter 17, we learn once again that the cleansing of which he spoke is through an acceptance of the truth of Christ. Sanctify them through thy truth when he prays for them on their behalf. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they might also be sanctified through the truth. However, the adversaries 
were never promised any cleansing. And in fact, they could not be cleansed because they were bastards. As we read discussing the identity of those who killed the prophets in our last presentation in this series, the sins of the people of Jerusalem were attributed to the fact that while Yahweh had planted a pleasant plant, it produced strange slips. The people had committed an iniquity which could not be washed off no matter how much soap they used. There were evil figs in Jerusalem which were so evil they could not be eaten. And these were the Canaanite, Edomites, and other bastards which were also present in Jerusalem in the time of Christ. It is these people who shall be held responsible for the blood of Abel, because they are the literal seed of the serpent and descendants of the devil Cain, the son of the serpent, who did kill Abel. This is true, and no number of lies contrived by Charles Weissman will obscure this truth. This leaves us near the top of page 37 of Weissman's book. Perhaps we shall complete this chapter one day soon. <laughs> I don't know if you have any discussion or response to any of that, but it's incredible to me that Weissman actually took the purpose of Christ and turned it upside down in order to try to disprove two seed line. It's incredible. Yeah, once again, the fact that he tries so hard to cover up the link from the serpent to Cain to the Jews, it always shows that he's trying to cover it all up, that he has an agenda, that perhaps he is a serpent, as we've uh, said, and that's why he doesn't like it, and he wants that erased. Absolutely. I, I mean, after doing this, that this really vexed me, and... and... I read it for the first time yesterday when I prepared these notes. I read it for the second time today as I presented them. And, and wow, it, it just, I was incensed. I'm incensed by this. I'm more incensed that a lot of other professedly Christian men have read this and fell for it. And some of those men I know personally, and they fell for this. That makes me wonder about that. I have no doubt that, how could you read this? And, and how could a Christian read this and accept it? That Christ died so that we could be judged for these ancient sins, so that we would face the judgment for this ancient sin. These Judean Israelites were to bear the judgment for all the unlawful acts of murder committed, whether or not their direct ancestors had done them. That's absolutely contrary, not only to the um, spirit of the law, the law itself, the, the words of God and the prophets, the purpose of Christ, it, it's on so many levels, it's contrary to scripture. And he says, this includes the murder of Abel by Cain, because Cain was an Adamite. So if one Adamite kills another, we're all responsible for that, like we control it, or like we would do the same thing. John in his epistle um, yeah, and like, goes to lengths to, to describe someone who would kill his brother as being a murderer. And that's how he defines murder, as one who kills a brother. And he's not saying that we're all guilty of it. 
he's encouraging his readers not to hate their brother, but to love them. I'm sorry, go on. I was going to say, uh, what, what's the point in doing good if you, you're going to have this big stack of an endless amount of sins that you have to face up to? That The whole point was that it all gets wiped away and whatever good deeds you're doing, it's building up in heaven. So you should, you know, just keep getting back up, keep getting out in the world, trying to do as much good as you can for your race, because, you know, one day you'll get a reward in heaven. And by Christ coming, he's wiped all the bad stuff away. That that's how our Christians should view it and not from this, you know, distorted view that we're all going to have a reckoning for a massive amount of sins none uh, that we didn't do or, or our ancestors didn't do. It's just completely crazy what he's saying. Well, well right. The, the idea of the scriptures, if, if I could explain it properly in just a couple of sentences, our ancient ancestors' sin, starting from Adam... And, and then from the ancient Israelites who were put off into the captivities, they were our ancestors or we're not Christians. We might think we are, but if they're not our ancestors, we're not Christians. So they sinned and they made all those mistakes and, and we've suffered down through the ages on account of their sins. But now, um, after so many centuries of suffering, we have an opportunity to be reconciled to God, and we won't be punished for any of our sins so long as we repent, turn to Christ, and seek to build the kingdom of heaven. And we should do that voluntarily because we've been forgiven of all these past sins, and we can rectify our situation if we are all obedient to Christ and seek to build his kingdom. That's the, that's Christianity. That's the Christian covenants. And Weissman's turning all that upside down. Yeah. 180 degrees. And he's teaching this is Christianity, that we're, we are going to be held, that descendants of Seth are going to be held responsible for the blood of Abel that Cain slew before Seth was born. Adam never bore the blame of the murder of Abel. Only Cain did. And these people that Christ is addressing are the descendants of Cain. And they are the seed of the serpent. And all of Christ's words in the entire Old Testament proves that. And Weissman would seek to deny even Christianity itself in order to obscure that fact. I could repeat myself in different words forever here. People are either going to see it or they don't. And, and if they don't see it, well, yeah, and just um, they can't be Christians. I'm sorry. Um, a lot of people have um, difficulty, you know, that that you that you um, suffer the punishments for your ancestors. You know, they think that's unfair. But I mean, j just the way life is, you know, where you grow up, what what you look like, it's all based on decisions your ancestors made so whether you right. like it or not that's how the world is you know like if you are born in america that's because your ancestors moved there or if um your father decided to marry a blonde you're probably gonna have blonde hair you know that's just the way the world is so i mean if you're, you know what i mean yeah right at every level i mean if your father works hard and provides you 
and teaches you a trade, you could go out into the world and, and you might have to do some hard work, but you can make a living because he provided you the tools, the knowledge and, and the discipline by which to go make that living. If your father is a drunk and does nothing but drink all day and, and does nothing for you, you're going to become a street urchin running the street and probably commit robberies and get into drug dealing. You're suffering, even if you don't realize it, you're suffering the consequences of your father's sin. It's that simple. And your children are going to suffer and their children until somebody stands up in one generation and makes things right for himself and repents of that behavior by not being a drunk, by not being a street urchin, by standing up for himself and, and getting into something constructive. But this is how we have generations of white people in America, and some of them are successful. And, and even though they're worldly, that they're successful in the fact that they maintain themselves from generation to generation. They work that family farm. They work at that family trade that they learned from their father. And, and they do likewise for their children. But others just get into this pattern of, of failure and, and sloth and poverty. And poverty is not always um, attributed to sloth and drunkenness, but quite often it is. And especially what, when it, it leads to criminal behavior generation after generation. And, and it's because people can't break that mold. So you do suffer the consequences of the, the sins of your parents in everyday life. Your, your father could be a cheater and, and, and ends up, or your mother could be a cheater and, and an adulteress and it ends in divorce and, and she's going to get custody. So what kind of, um, in, in today's courts, she's going to get custody, not your dad <laughs> who didn't cheat. So, so what, what's the, um, the pattern that we learn from that as children? Oh, mom cheated on dad, but she gets um, to keep her kids in the house and a big child support check. And, and those children are going to suffer the consequences of their mother's sin somewhere down the road. So we do, like you said, we do um, suffer the consequences of, of our sin and our children suffer the consequences of our sin. And we've suffered the consequences of our parents' sin. Even if we're not um, going to face execution or, or the punishment that they deserve, we still suffer the consequences of sin from generation to generation. Look at how we're suffering now for the consequences from the consequences of the sin our parents committed when they went along with the Jewish media and got us involved in the world wars of, of the 20th century. And we all suffer the consequences of that. Today we suffer under Jewish world supremacism because of that. It's, there's so many levels where we suffer the consequences of sin. But we have a promise that we're going to overcome as long as we keep the commandments of Christ. Yeah, the only reason we're still around is because of Christ, right? Because of that promise uh, Yahweh or Christ made to Abraham. Absolutely. For, for all the sins of our ancestors, we should have been destroyed. 
generations and generations and generations ago. And, and if it weren't for certain white men, Christian men, standing up at various times in history, we'd all be flying carpets right now. Our, our names would be like um, Mustafa and Mohammed. <laughs> we'd all be flying carpets. Or trying to. Okay, thank you for joining me. And, and I hope this all makes sense. And we will continue to address Charles Weissman's treachery. But it's laid open right now. I mean, he basically, he's doing everything but denying Christ. But he has denied Christ. He's turned the gospel upside down. Yeah, exactly. Down. He, he showed once again his true colors. Um, but yeah, I look forward to next week. Thanks for having me, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, not the God of all the evil devils out there. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, and praise Christ. Praise Yahweh.